You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on March 31st, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, Business and Innovation Q&A for young entrepreneurs and anyone else. And we have a number of questions here. Um, it's a question from Icy here. Tell us about your failures as an entrepreneur and what you learned from them. I've been fortunate I haven't had that many just outright flame out splat failures. But I would say that insofar as I have, and I'll tell you about some of them, the, uh, the, probably the number one issue is, uh, did I really care enough about the thing that I was doing? If I really cared enough, I found a way to make it work. But there are cases where I didn't really care enough, and where, but I, where I still took it a certain distance, where I thought it was gonna be kind of easy and it was like, yeah, it's, I, actually, the other, the other point to make is there are cases where I kind of thought, oh, yeah, I kind of know what to do. I just turn the crank and it'll come out. And I wasn't that engaged. It wasn't something which was a stretch, something which really made me feel like it was something meaningful to me. And those are the cases where things didn't work well. I'll give you an example. Back, uh, so back around 19, this distant, distant past, but uh, around 1981, I started my first company, which was uh, uh, for the commercialization of this thing called SMP, which was kind of a forerunner of mathematical and morphine language and so on. Symbolic manipulation program is what that stood for. Uh, that company had all kinds of adventures. Uh, it was a whole venture capital funded company. Eventually, it, uh, I sort of lost interest in it. And eventually, it went public in a very undistinguished IPO years later. But that's a different story. But having done that, I was then mostly an academic, actually then at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Um, and I thought, gosh, one of the things I really need is a C interpreter. This must have been around 1984-ish. Uh, I was still using C programming language for lots of kinds of things. I was using SMP for some things, but I was still kind of using C programming language and so on for, for lots of things I was doing. And it was like, this is, you know, why isn't there a C interpreter? Why isn't there a sort of an, what would now be called an IDE around that kind of thing? Let me go build one. And I thought, this is pretty easy, actually. You know, I kind of know how to do large scale software development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I hired a few young people to work on it. Um, and uh, it was like, this is, you know, kind of easy. I'll just sort of uh, sit back, relax, do it. Well, it wasn't successful, partly because I, made the mistake of kind of letting the young people I'd hired do some of the more difficult, well, no, the more interesting parts, uh, because I thought, you know, this is kind of a simple thing and I'll just fill in the pieces that I need to fill in. So it wasn't successful. It was, it was I think, some people who were interns on that project ended up going and taking some of what we did and uh, turned that into a quite successful company, which was, which was great. Um, but uh, the project as such, just sort of eventually, I just sort of said, forget it. Uh, this is not that interesting to me, and it's not that, I mean, it, it was something which had plenty of commercial potential, but that wasn't the thing I was most interested in at that time, and so I sort of backed out of it. So that's one. So the, the thing I learned from that one is 
don't do projects you think are too easy and that you're not really you know intellectually engaged with at least that's a lesson for me i mean i i saw something a little bit similar happen actually with uh, steve jobs um you know i knew him when he worked at uh, when he had started next which was the company that he did sort of between apple and apple i mean having uh sort of started apple got that going through the macintosh and so on um then sort of corporate forces uh ousted him and he thought look i know how to build computers i'm just going to go and do the you know turn the crank and build a, a computer and that was sort of next and it had a lot of very good ideas um and but i felt like he thought it was kind of too easy it's like i've done you know i've done the apple 2 i've done the the mac you know these have been successful i can just turn the crank and do another successful computer and it didn't work that way now in the end uh you know next was absorbed by apple steve came back to apple and in fact a lot of what was done inside next has turned into the future of apple but as a company on its own i felt like that was a case where it was like hey i know what to do you know i just sort of put together the right pieces and i'll make a great computer and uh you know subsequently when when steve came back to apple and sort of had things that would seem difficult again um you know then there was lots of success there um and uh i think you know that that's that's been one of my lessons is is you know i i work on lots of kinds of things and everything i work on feels kind of difficult if it doesn't feel kind of difficult it usually isn't something i'm going to be successful with it may not be a a lesson for everybody but that's my observation and if it's something where i'm uh, for example whenever i see a situation where it's like uh just do this because it'll make money for example uh not because you actually care about the output not because you think it's an interesting thing to do but just oh it's it's you know it's a it's a it's a get rich quick scheme so to speak uh in my experience and my observation those essentially never work and of course it's very confusing because you're always hearing about oh look at this person who you know did something cool with this particular thing and and you know they got rich often there's a you know there's a big long back story to that and often they're one in a thousand and you know it's in my observation it's usually not luck in the end there's usually quite a lot more to it um sometimes it is luck but uh you know i think these things where it's like i've got a scheme and it's really you know i'm just going to i'm just going to execute the scheme and everything's going to work great uh you know i don't tend to do that myself because i've sort of that's not part of my motivation structure particularly um but when i see that happening it's it's usually not successful and uh you know there are things i've considered doing which are in that category and they usually kind of uh wither on the launch pad so to speak um as because i don't really have quite the enthusiasm to do it or i realize uh this is something where it's going to uh even if it even if it's successful it's going to make me have to do a lot of stuff i don't want to do so th- those are cases so i'll give you another example of a of a of a somewhat um perhaps amusing failure uh, as a thing that um this is around uh, mid 2000s when the cell phone craze was all the rage and this by the way probably follows a little bit in the get rich quick scheme uh category because everybody there was a thing what was it the crazy frog ringtone 
which was like, you know, millions of dollars being made by somebody who has the crazy frog, you know, put up, I think it was crazy frog ringtones. And so I knew perfectly well that cellular automata, things I've studied scientifically, were a great way of making kind of mass customized content. Um, among, among those things was music. Um, there's a person who has worked at the company at that time who was very into figuring out sort of algorithmic music kinds of things around cellular automata. And um, so he put together kind of a, a, a test case for this and we realized, yes, you could make sort of mass customized ringtones that way. And, and I also, uh, just because I like to have sort of a personal engagement in these things, it's like I was frustrated because my cell phone just sounded like everybody other, everybody else's cell phone. And, you know, you go to a restaurant, it was used to be the case that, you know, a, a phone rings and everybody looks around because all the rings are the same. And I was like, I want to have a unique ring. And um, so anyway, we, we within a very short time, we built kind of the underlying you know, cellular automata music generation capabilities. This was sort of much earlier in the, in the life of active websites. Um, took a bit longer to build the active website part of it and be able to deliver these ringtones. Okay, there was another piece to the whole thing. And the other piece was, given that you had generated a ringtone as a, as a whatever, it wasn't an MP3 file, it was something else, it was another sound format, how would you actually get it onto a cell phone? And in those days, the only way you could get it onto a cell phone is to work through cell phone carriers and through some very elaborate process. And there were all these things where you had to literally have a, a catalog of all the different kinds of cell phones to know how you would encode it for this. And then you would do things with, I forget how it all worked. But in any case, uh, we made the mistake of thinking, gosh, you know, there's this craze going on. It's kind of a get rich quick scheme thing. You know, let's start selling customized ringtones. Well, uh, it turns out it took six months to work through the arrangements with these cell phone carriers. And, and remember, each ringtone was going to cost five cents or something, and um, uh, maybe a little bit more than that, but, but a small amount of money. And um, uh, the, you know, the, the, there was this distribution channel, basically, which was this very difficult to deal with distribution channel of, uh, of cell phone carriers with the very bizarre collections of all these different models of phones, you know, hundreds of different kinds of phones that had to be curated and so on. And, and so in the end, the, you know, the actual Wolf and Tones website, which you can go to, it's, it's people like it, it's fun. Um, the, that was fine, but the problem was we tried to make it into a sort of commercial thing to sort of chase the crazy frog. And uh, that was just a disaster. Um, partly because there was a craze, but the craze didn't last very long. And by the time we'd messed around for six months, setting up the distribution channel, the craze was long over. The crazy frog was, was uh, you know, long dead, so to speak. Um, I think that, um, uh, so what was the lesson from that? I mean, uh, the lesson, uh, what, one thing. Okay, so what was interesting from that? That was a very consumer play. It was something that we hadn't really done before, something that oriented towards sort of general consumers and so on. We did learn a certain amount from that. We learned quite a bit about how to make active websites. Um, we learned a, a fair amount about sort of uh, making sort of the cool consumer thing. Um, and I think uh, that project informed Wolfram Alpha in quite a number of ways, because Wolfram Alpha was obviously also an active website, which came out only two or three years later. Um, that even used some of the same technology ideas as, as the ringtone site had, had used. 
Um, the only thing that was sort of an interesting negative within my company was as we were developing Wolfram Alpha, there was a certain sentiment in my management team, it's going to be another Wolfram Tones fiasco. And um, uh, that was uh, sort of a, 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 a and I think, um, but, but I suppose the main thing there was, you know, if you're really going to chase a trend, that's a tough thing to do. Um, and uh, should be done with care, so to speak. And, uh, you know, better to do something which is a, a very kind of, um, uh, if you're going to chase a trend, in my observation, sort of being involved with the trend in a way that isn't necessarily a product is a good thing. Like personal analytics is something where I've been personally very interested in that for a long time. It's now like 2012, I wrote this blog post that talked about the uh, then, what was it, 25 years, it's now another extra 10 years of data that I've sort of collected about myself for personal analytics kinds of things. And that post uh, and the things that came after it got plenty of visibility and sort of got us involved in that world. I thought about building a product around personal analytics. We couldn't really see what to build. Uh, we eventually did some stuff with Facebook analytics and so on. But in terms of, you know, being the, the sort of the hub for all personal analytics and so on, we looked at that, decided not to build a product around that because it seemed like it was a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of things, a lot of sands that were shifting in terms of the ways that people connect to things. A lot of companies that were collecting data from, I don't know, wasn't yet fitness watches, but it soon would have been. Um, and, uh, but were really keeping that, What you know, they thought part of the value was that they were keeping that data themselves and didn't really want to, you know, share it with people and so on. So it was a, it was a thing where there were things to do there that was sort of, that wasn't really so much of a trend yet at that time. I think we were part of even defining some of that trend. Maybe, maybe it had a little bit of a, a trend to the uh, quantified self movement and so on. Um, but, uh, you know, that was, that was a, as far as I'm concerned, was a, what we should have done with Wolfram Tones is written essentially just put up the website, free website, cool thing where you can do music generation. Sorry, we don't know how to upload it to your phone. Um, you know, if you can figure out how to get it onto your phone by hook or crook, uh, so be it, but not try and chase that particular trend. Um, so I would say those are, those are some things I've, I've learned from that. Um, let's see. Um, there's a question here. Gosh, there's so many interesting questions. Um, there's another question from IC about, what's my opinion about software patents? Oh, what a can of worms. Um, uh, you know, I'm not sure how useful I can be in this topic. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I think the, there's sort of a, uh, you know, in terms of people working on things, there's kind of trade secrets, there's kind of uh, trademarks and branding, and there's patents. And, you know, patents were developed for machinery and they were developed for, uh, you know, particular kinds of, of um, uh, and, and some kinds of, uh, I think, uh, what was the first, uh, there's all these stories about patents and Jefferson and winemaking and all kinds of things. I, I don't remember all these stories. Um, but uh, the, um, um, uh, and I've also, it's also interesting that, that, you know, what is covered and what isn't covered. I mean, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a, um, uh, a line, what's it from? The US Constitution maybe about, uh, 
you know, to afford to the uh, people in science and the useful arts something about, uh, you know, some number of years of protection of their inventions and so on. And it's always sort of interesting that that has applied in, uh, you know, that has had very specific forms of application. So, for example, scientific ideas that might be in academic literature or might be the subject of academic literature, there's no analog of the sort of protection that you know patents, copyrights, trademarks, whatever, provide there. It's a much fuzzier thing. Uh, I mean, there is some legal doctrine around it, but it is, uh, it's not as cut and dried, um, as, uh, as comparatively cut and dried as these other areas. Um, I think, uh, uh, you know, my, my observation, I suppose, is um, uh, a lot of what matters in developing things tends to be, you know, there's the pure idea, there's the clever way to actually implement the idea, and then there's the huge amount of work to actually turn that into a real thing. And I think in software, uh, a lot of what happens is the huge amount of work to turn it into a real thing. Occasionally there's the cute idea, you know, the cute user interface idea about doing this or that thing. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about about that. Um, the story of of um, you know using patents for that. I mean, clearly there are other cases in which you know you spend your life developing some some cool piece of machinery which is quite easy to copy, and uh, you know it's it's really kind of a, a bad thing if uh, uh, you know you, nobody's going to put the effort in and put the investment in to create that if it can be copied so easily. But it's less clear to me when it's uh, uh, in, in, in these other cases. I'm not sure I have, uh, I haven't thought about this in a while. I, I do notice from time to time the, um, uh, um, you know, some of these things where, um, I mean, I, I, I have to say that when it's too easy to get a patent on too silly a thing, then that just gums up the whole system. And particularly then when people come around saying, you know, We've got a patent on this incredibly trivial thing, you know, and we're going to uh, come and, you know, insist on extracting money from you because you're doing the same kind of thing, uh, you know, that I view as being uh, rather parasitic and not a good thing. Um, and I think, uh, you know, occasionally people have come and, and done that with us. And, you know, we're a company that's been around a long time and, and done a lot of, lot of innovation in our time. And uh, I would say that I'm, I'm happy to say that we've been able to say, look, we did this a long uh, earlier than your patent, you know, go away. And um, uh, although the, the law has changed, I think a bit on in that regard, but, but uh, uh, you know, it, it's, those, those are things that in my view were not sort of positives for the world. Um, I don't have as, as well developed a, a thinking about that as I might. The question here about from Shady Sloth, uh, how many hours did you work in academia compared to when you went into industry? Boy, I don't really take pay much attention to the number of hours I work. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a a do the things I like as work, which means I spend as many hours as I can doing those kinds of things and uh, things that like the thing I'm doing right now. I don't know if this is work or not work. It's kind of uh, you know I'm I'm doing it because I think it might be useful to people and I find it kind of fun. And um, uh, I don't know where, where it falls in the work, non-work categorization. But I think um, 
the the question of uh, uh, when I I mean I have always uh, it's a terrible admission but I've kind of never really worked for any anybody or anybody else so to speak I mean I've always kind of been my own boss and that was true in academia as well as in in the uh, uh, kind of um, commercial world so to speak um, so. Uh, you know, the amount that I've worked has been largely determined by me, so to speak, rather than by somebody telling me, oh, you haven't put in enough hours this week, so to speak. Um, I suspect if you counted the number of hours that I quotes work, it's absolutely totally outrageous in, in the sense of being being very large. Um, and it's kind of like I, you know, I, I carve out a, um, uh, you know, I go and, uh, uh, well, when my... But my, the, the children of mine that, that have not left the nest, so to speak, there's like, there's time spent there and uh, et cetera. But, um, uh, and then there's always that, um, you know, the the sleep, I'm not a short sleeping person. I'm, I'm not somebody who decides to economize in that part of my life. Um, and uh, uh, other than that, it's kind of, I'm, I'm usually doing things that some people might define as work, Although I often define them as, as uh, you know, I tend to define them as things that I want to do. So I don't think I could have told the difference between the, uh, my workload in academia and uh, not in academia, so to speak. It's always, by many people's standards, outrageously high. Um, and, uh, but that's because I'm doing things I want to be doing. Um, and it might be different if I was uh, really, uh, you know, I mean, I've I've had a good time from time to time. I haven't really done this for a long time, but but um, before I started my current company, which means more than thirty four years ago, um, I did have as a sort of a hobby doing uh, technology and strategy consulting for other companies, and there I would sometimes be, in a sense, working for some company, doing something for some limited amount of time, and uh, uh, I always found that it's kind of relaxing because it's like. I'm doing this for somebody else's company. I'm not in charge. I'm not. Uh, I'm not ultimately responsible for this. Um, but uh, I have to say, I prefer the being ultimately responsible than than the other alternative, which tends to be you do something great and then the people you're doing it for say, I don't know, and maybe we're not going to use this anyway. So let's see. Question from Taka here: How can young people? like this person says, my niece obsessed with fusion rockets, follow their dreams. Oh boy. I mean, I think that um, uh, the, you know, what gets complicated? If you take the example of fusion rockets, you know, if you're a, um, uh, you know, if you're 15 years old and you say, I wanna make fusion rockets, it's a long road. I mean, I think uh, like Elon Musk was interested in making electric cars when he was about that age. And, you know, in the end, he's making a lot of electric cars, but it took a long time and it took many different steps where, I don't know, uh, be interesting, yeah, the, um, you know, whether it all stages along his path, he always was like, and in the end, I'm going to make electric cars or whether it was like, well, I'm doing this because this is interesting right now. And then it's like, come back to the electric cars later. I'll take my own example about physics and studying fundamental physics. You know, I got interested in sort of finding the fundamental theory of physics 
well, I, I worked on fundamental physics and wasn't really interested. I thought that was too hard a problem back when I sort of did that for a living. But, but by around early 1990s, I was like, I think I have a real idea how to find a fundamental theory of physics. Um, obviously, by that time, I was a proper adult, you know, CEO in companies and with lots of academic plumage and all kinds of things like this. Um, but, uh, you know, I kind of had this, this goal at that time of let me think about doing this. But then it took another 30 years before I was um, uh, before I really had got all the pieces lined up to be able to actually execute on that sort of dream, so to speak. Um, and I would say that one of the things I'm, I'm actually interested in right now is there's things that I thought about doing around 1980. Um, that particularly have to do with what I would now call symbolic discourse language, representing sort of computationally all kinds of things in the world beyond what we've been able to represent in Wolfram language, things like computational contracts, things like this. I'm interested in doing that. It's something I first thought about doing around 1980. Um, and uh, I've sort of been waiting until all the pieces are together where I think there's a serious chance to do it. So if you say, uh, you know, in this year, I wanna build fusion rockets, if you, uh, if you kind of are in a direct track for that, it might not end very well. I'll give you another example. When I was a kid in the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s, I was really into space program kinds of things. That was sort of got, got what got me interested in physics and other things and so on. But, you know, at the time I was sort of, everybody was saying, oh, there's gonna be a Mars colony by the year 2015 or something. And there's going to be, you know, everybody's gonna be taking trips to Mars all the time. Okay, so I could have taken the, you know, I could have decided, okay, this is what I, do, what I want to do in my life. I want to, you know, work on things to do with the space program and imagine, you know, how to create, uh, you know, elaborate uh, uh, cities on Mars and so on. Um, but as it turned out, I got more interested in basic physics and then in computation and so on. Um, and so that wasn't really something I seriously considered doing. But thank goodness I didn't, because I would have spent my whole life basically waiting for other people to and the world to get to the point where you could build rockets to take people to Mars and so on. Um, and so, you know, there is you, you have to be somewhat, uh, you know, cognizant of the time in history in which you're living. And, uh, uh, you know, if you say the thing I really want to be as an asteroid miner, well, you know, it's probably going to be a while before that's a realistic thing to do. And I think uh, you know, the question is, if you have some goal, like you want to build fusion rockets or something, it's like, what is the, you know, walk that back to the sub goal that is actually achievable in, um, uh, in sort of at this point in human history. And if the, if the sub goal is uh, that one's interested in, I don't know, propulsion systems or something, or one's interested in fusion. I mean, this is a time in history when people are getting interested in the possibility of actually making, uh, you know, practical uh, confinement fusion type type um, technology and so on. And that's that's a kind of uh, direction to go in. Um, but I think it's important to actually be somewhat realistic about, uh, uh, or to decide, you know, this is really what you're going to commit your life to doing and spend decades or longer to build up to something which you can actually do. But I think if you're like a 15 year old or something, fusion rockets, it's not under your control what happens. Just as, you know, if I stayed really interested in space and, um, you know, it was 
something way beyond my control. Maybe I could have contributed some cool ideas about how to build this or that thing or whatever it is, but that's not what's going to make or break the possibility of a space program, you know, in the 1980s and 1990s and so on. Um, now, in terms of, of what it takes to, um, uh, to sort of, uh, uh, I would say that, that it's always very worthwhile. My observation is achieving things helps you achieve more things. And even if the first thing you achieve is something which in the absolutely big picture of what you might want to achieve is kind of minor, achieving that thing gets you momentum to go achieve the next thing. And I think, for example, in things I've done that have been in some cases pretty, pretty uh, big in terms of the amount of stuff that needs to be put into them, whether it's Wolfram Language, whether it's the Fundamental Physics Project, Wolfram Alpha, these kinds of things, um, they're, they're, you know, even these, these, some of the books I've written and things, these are big, big projects. And to get to the point where I could execute these big projects, I had to have quite a bit of momentum from success of smaller projects. And I don't think I could have both psychologically and practically done these big projects without having had success from smaller projects. So I think the, the thing to say is that it's really worthwhile to pick projects. I mean, I like to pick projects where every new project has something about it that's really fresh for me and different and somehow difficult. Um, sometimes the projects doesn't have to be, and this is a trap more for people who have done projects that have been successful. One of the traps is, okay, you've done a couple of successful projects. Now you've always got to advance. It's always got to be a bigger next project. Well, that's a trap. I've seen a bunch of people in their careers be really, really, uh, you know, not have a good time because, you know, at age 25, they did something big and then they get to age 55 and they're always like, everything I do has got to be bigger than the thing I did when I was 25. Well, one thing I've noticed is what's big and what's not is often very hard to tell until, you know, until decades after it's been done. Like if I were to take things I've done about new kind of science versus Wolfram language versus Wolfram Alpha versus physics project and so on. And you want, you know, you ask me, what's a ranking of those things of, you know, what's the most important and even other, other stuff I've done of, of sort of writing more general things and, and, you know, other kinds of projects. If I were to, if you asked me, you know, rank those, what's the most important? I don't know. I don't think, you know, maybe one of them will turn out to be much more important than others you know, in a hundred years, but it's very unclear. And for me, it doesn't really matter to me that, you know, the next one I do has to be, oh, it's demonstrably bigger than the previous ones. I don't feel good unless it's bigger than the previous ones. To me, it's, you know, is it a project that I'm interested in? Is it a project that has elements that are a little bit of a stretch for me? Um, then, then, I, then I think it's worth doing. And in terms of people uh, sort of starting out in things, I mean, I think, uh, as I say, having success on projects which you have created yourself is a really worthwhile thing, or even actually being involved in successful projects. But again, that's a much less certain thing because you can, you know, I, I notice projects that I've done that have been successful, other people have been involved. It creates a sort of a, I, I think it's sort of a glow that lasts at least a decade when people have been involved in a project that went from just the idea to a thing that's sort of big in the world. People realize that's the thing you can do. Now, the problem is if it's somebody else's project, you don't have control over whether it succeeds or not. 
you may not have control even if it's your own project, but you have more control potentially. And so it's sort of a risk because you can be involved. You know, I see plenty of people who are very talented people. They get involved in some startup. The startup is a kind of a good idea. The thing crashes and burns um, because of some bad decisions or bad luck sometimes, but usually bad decisions on the part of the people leading it or the people, part of the people investing in it, whatever else. And the very talented people who are kind of the, 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 the sidekicks to that happening, all the work they've done is, is thrown away. And that's, that's kind of a shame. Um, but, you know, so I would say back to um, uh, the fusion rocket gal here, um, you know, I would say that, that um, um, you know, it's like pick projects that you think are interesting and they may be directly related to fusion rockets. They may not. I'll give you again an example in my own case of the physics project that, you know, been doing over the last couple of years. Um, this project, if I had gone in a straight line from the early 1990s saying, oh, I figured out something cool about physics, I'm going to work on the fundamental theory of physics, I don't think I would have got to where we are right now. To get to where we are right now required all kinds of ideas and tools and methodology and almost psychology that came from completely different things that I've done. And in the end, if I look at what led to the possibility of this project, it's a set of circumstances and other people and things I've learned and tools I've built that's a very complicated tower of things that I almost certainly would never have got to if I was just going in a straight line. And I mean, you know, for me, it's sort of a strange thing because I'm sort of re-entering in some sense some kinds of areas of physics, which I worked on back in the late 1970s. And I had lots of friends and colleagues who worked on those things who were typically a bit older than me at that time. And, you know, I, as I come back into this field, many of those people are um, still um, uh, um, are still in that, um, uh, you know, still in that field. And I, I uh, you know, it's kind of interesting for me to think uh, what would have happened if I had kind of stayed in a straight line in that field? Would I, for example, have gotten to this fundamental theory of physics that we have? The answer to that, I think I can definitively say is no. If I had stayed sort of in the field working, even if my goal had been to get to this fundamental theory of physics, not a chance because it just required so many things from other places. It, it just wasn't, you couldn't get there. And so, uh, you know, I think that the, um, uh, the thing is find things which are, uh, which you, I mean, usually, Okay, so an, another trap, I suppose, is to say, there's one thing I want to do, and it's fusion rockets. Well, okay, not available at this time in history. So you can then go into a mope and say, well, then I'm not going to do anything. Or you can say, well, okay, what are my next ranked five things that I think are really interesting to do? Well, pick one or two of them and do them. And, you know, just wait. And maybe the world will get to the point where fusion rockets can be done. Maybe it won't. Um, you know, maybe that that generation will live long enough that that will happen. Maybe for some reason, well, like, for example, if you were committed in the early 1960s to a nuclear powered spacecraft, uh, well, some part of that you're out of luck because there was this kind of crazy project. I think it was called Project Orion. That was a, a project to to power spacecraft by nuclear explosions in space. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a crazy project to begin with. but 
it became even more crazy when people realized about things like electromagnetic pulses destroying satellites from nuclear explosions in space and so on. And there was a kind of, you know, a, an international agreement, we're not going to do nuclear explosions in space, hopefully that will continue. Um, and uh, so that project was like, no, it can't happen. So if, if you know, if you pinned all your hopes on that project, uh, then, you know, not a good idea, so to speak. So I think it's, it's kind of like, what is the next things in the ranking that are interesting and seem worth doing, and by the way, may end up being stepping stones. I mean, again, for my own efforts in, in fundamental physics, uh, the, the building of, I don't know, pieces of Wolfram language or the building of, you know, the graph theory functionality there, the building of um, things in, in, uh, uh, in, in various sort of science directions I've gone in, where if you'd said, is this contributing directly to the fundamental theory of physics? I would have said, I, I don't see how it's doing that. Um, but it turns out that it did do it. Um, and it was just sort of the, the tower of things that I learned that at first didn't seem relevant. I mean, this is also sort of a sort of an argument for the kind of liberal arts education theory, which is to say, you know, you can say, okay, I've got this end point. I'm trying to get to this end point. I've got to learn this, 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 this to get to this end point. Well, turns out if if you want to, if that end point is not something where people already know that end point, if the endpoint is something that's going to require new ideas and real innovation, then just knowing the stack of things people have learned to get to an endpoint like that before is not really going to help you. Um, and that's sort of an argument for just learn a lot about a lot of different kinds of things. For me, I, I tend to learn best when I actually am doing projects in different areas. And, you know, I've, I've done enough projects in my life. I've sort of covered lots and lots of different areas. You know, somebody will talk to me about, I don't know, uh, percolation theory came up yesterday and, and some something I was doing. And it's like, well, yes, I've, I've done a project about that. I did a project about that in, in about 1980 in connection with cosmology. And then I did a project about that in, in 1983-ish as a consulting thing for an oil company. And so, you know, I've got this sort of stack of different places where I've made use of that, which is how come I've, I've learned about it. Um, and, uh, you know, knowing a diverse collection of things is, to my mind, one of the most important things in being able to really develop new ideas is to, to know a diversity of things that you can then wheel in when necessary, when some new idea comes up. And I, I think, you know, it, it really helps to have a good memory, um, which I fortunately, uh, uh, you know, seem, seem to have. But part of the reason I think that I remember things is that, uh, you know, I really cared about them at the time I was was learning about them. It wasn't, oh, I've got to read this book and I'm going to do this test and blah, blah, blah. It was, I'm doing this project that I think is really interesting and I need to know about this fact, or I need to understand this area in order to do this project. And I think, I think it's probably true for everybody that that's what makes the knowledge really stick. Whereas if it's just like, you know, read this book so that you can pass the test tomorrow type thing, I, I'm quite certain that will you know, go in one ear, out the other, so to speak, for, for, for many people, probably including myself. Let's see. It's a question here. Oh boy, all kinds of things here. Um, it's a question from Atori. How much would should one project in the future rather than staying focused on the present? It's an interesting question. I have generally taken the point of view that a few percent of my time, and I don't measure it in any precise way, 
I'm going to spend on sort of planning for the future. And most of it, I'm going to spend on executing what I'm doing now. I think that's my kind of rule of thumb. And, you know, if you're always thinking about, I mean, I, I kind of like to imagine different kinds of projects that might be possible. And I've kept over the course of decades, sort of a list of projects that I'd like to do. And I gradually accumulate information. I gradually kind of get to know people in these fields and learn about them and get some kind of feeling for how these different uh, ways of thinking work and they're relevant to different areas, these kinds of things. And um, then, you know, one is ready to, you know, I'm sort of gradually getting to the point where, yes, I'm actually going to do this. It's a non-trivial thing to actually start this project and say, I'm, I'm actually going to do it now. And that takes, I would say, quite a bit of personal tenacity to really, really do that, particularly when there are a zillion other things that are happening to say, okay, I'm going to do this new thing, even though there are a zillion things that could keep, could keep me completely busy. And maybe that's a trait that I've tried to develop is, is the, the, the sort of, look, I, I, I feel a need to do new things enough to the point where I say, I'm getting frustrated, I'm just doing old things. I'm really going to jump in and do a new thing, even though the old things could keep me completely busy. Um, I think that uh, um, sometimes a thing to realize is you can have a, a plan, a 20 year plan, and you know things can show up in the world that either block that plan or there are better opportunities than that plan. And so one of the things that's often challenging to me is that when one works on big projects, it's like how much, to what extent should one keep oneself open to, oh, there's this amazing opportunity that just you know, opened up. Let me, let me pursue that. And um, I would say a number of times, for example, in the 1990s, when I was spent a decade working on a big basic science project, turned into my book, A New Kind of Science, um, the, uh, there were lots of things happening with the development of the web, with development of uh, what I had originally named technical computing, but then other people started using that name too. Um, the, uh, uh, and I really was kind of like, I can't pay attention to this. I am tenaciously trying to work on this basic science project and I want to get it finished. And I don't know if that was a correct personal decision or not. Um, it was a great sort of psychological effort to work on a project for 10 and a half years and get the thing finished. That was really, I think, the sort of the greatest achievement from that was just the very fact that it did get finished. Um, and, uh, you know, I was not involved, you know, I had considered, for example, there was a time when quant finance was really getting, getting developing and, and I knew perfectly well, people used our tools to do that stuff. I knew perfectly well, I could do something cool in that area. Um, and I thought about, you know, I talked about taking a, a, uh, uh, a sort of a, um, you know, a trading vacation or something. I never did it. I'm kind of glad I didn't do it. It's not my kind of thing, really. I, you know, I like building stuff and that doesn't feel like building things. It feels like just being smart and, uh, uh, you know, and, and sort of, um, you know, it's a, it's a good problem, puzzle, problem solving kind of thing but it doesn't feel like the sort of creative stuff that I, I personally really like to do. Um, the, uh, of course, I've never been inside that, so I might be wrong about that. But, um, uh, you know, but I didn't do that partly because I was focused on this one project. I was not like, you know, taking advantage of that opportunity. 
And so, you know, it is something that's sometimes challenging is how much should you stick to the knitting and keep doing what, you're, what you should be doing and, uh, you know, make that really successful versus, you know, look at the new things. And, and by the way, in, in, in companies, that's an issue as well. To what extent should you, you know, got the successful product? To what extent should you just keep doubling down or whatever on putting resources into that successful project? And to what extent should you be trying the new things? And pragmatically, it often doesn't make sense to try new things. Because if you just look at, you know, the return on investment, so to speak, from new things, it's in any short to medium term, it's kind of pathetic. And, you know, if you've got this big engine that's running and you can change what the engine is doing by 2%, it can be, you know, large amounts of commercial success. Whereas this thing over here where you're, you're trying to start this, you know, the bigger and bigger flywheel, but it isn't, uh, you know, there's a lot to, to get going there. Um, it can take a huge amount of effort because that, that business is just much, much smaller than the main, system, main thing you have, have going. And, and sometimes for me, like what I kind of do personally in terms of, of new projects and things, um, I have uh, tried to get to the point where we sort of routinely as a company do new things, even with the knowledge that when they're embryonic, they will be embryonic in terms of, of commercial uh, uh, returns and, and often will remain so for a year, five years, even 10 years. Um, but sometimes, you know, I'm really glad we've done them because it's like it turns out to be the thing that is an important part of the story of the future of the company. Um, but it's sometimes hard to see that at the beginning. And from a management point of view, it's, it's hard to justify some of those things because they are to the point where, you know, they're not gonna really do anything in terms of the bottom line for, for quite a number of years. So uh, I would say, you know, I like to have some degree of planning. I, I mean, I also, I tend to think about the future a certain amount. I've, I've, I've always been interested in that. And it's like, can I figure out what's going to happen? Can I figure out how this trend is going to connect to that trend is going to make something happen? Um, and insofar as I've been able to do that, it's been super useful in planning, you know, where should you put resources? Where should you put your own efforts? Is this going to be an area that really takes off? Is it not, you know, is, is IOT gonna happen? Is augmented reality gonna happen? Is, uh, you know, is, is this gonna happen? Is that gonna happen? It's useful to pay some attention to those things because, you know, back in the 19, you know, in 1970, if I said, is the space program going to happen, so to speak? Is it, you know, is that going to be the, the big story of the next few decades? Um, it was, I don't think I really internalized at that time that that wasn't going to be the case. That wasn't why I switched to doing more basic physics kinds of things. Later on, though, when I sort of really got more involved in sort of the computational approach to, to everything, science, technology, et cetera, um, I had been working in physics, and this was uh, late 1970s, and I, and I was pretty aware of the fact that I could feel that physics was slowing down. That is a bunch of big discoveries have been made. It was a very energetic field. And then it's like, okay, we got to this point. We picked the low-hanging fruit in this particular orchard. You know, now what's next? Well, it turns out it was a long, big grind to what's next. And so that was a, a kind of a, a, you know, some degree of, of sort of looking to the future to understand whether this is something one wants to do or not. I mean, sometimes also there are things where, uh, you know, where you, where you say, this is a, um, this is kind of some little thing that, that is possible in the world. And, uh, you know, do I want to take advantage of this or not? 
how is this going to end? You know, sometimes there are things which to me, it's like, this is not really, a, this is kind of a, a you know, a, sort of not a swindle, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a um, sort of leveraging some, some weird feature of the world that is something that is not going to end well. It's something where, you know, yes, it's this cool opportunity because everybody knows, you know, you can make money by investing in, I don't know what, some, uh, you know, I don't know, putting uh, solar cells in this place or that, whatever it is. I don't know what the what the thing is, but, you know, it becomes a sort of trendy thing. Like probably right now it's NFTs, although we'll see what... Um, uh, um, we might just for fun do something in that. Well, we, we have a bunch of capabilities in that space, so we might do something. So I, I'm, um, uh, but, but, you know, that's an example of something where um, you could say, I'm going to, um, you know, put all my eggs in that particular basket, probably a mistake, um, uh, the, the, perhaps not the best example, but there are these things where, where it kind of looks like it's too good to be true. And, um, and it usually is too good to be true, and it isn't true, or uh, you know, or that particular bubble gets burst, and so on. And I, I have to say that, that sort of being able to sort of learn from history and see the future a little bit to know what's the bubble that's going to burst versus the thing that's going to survive seems to be worthwhile to me. And, and sometimes it's also a like follow the right trend rather than the wrong trend. You know, you can you can say um, uh, there are things where I mean, I'm not always one to follow trends. I like to create things that maybe don't go anywhere near these trends. Um, but, uh, you know, if you actually, if there are two paths to pick, you know, uh, uh, VHS versus Betamax or something, and you can see you're picking the wrong path, then that's, um, uh, then that's something that it's convenient, not, it's a good idea not to do that. It's a question from Mikhail about, about Steve Jobs. Why was he so successful? He's a good engineer, good seller, good designer. I would say he was good at having a clear vision for what to do. I mean, I think that the thing that to me was always notable was it's like, get to the point. What's the point? What's the essence of what the point is? I mean, I like to think that this is part of what I try to do in the things I do is sort of, yes, there are lots of details. You can worry about this. You can worry about that but uh, kind of what's the key idea? And I think for Steve Jobs, it was also, to some extent, it was pick the, the right trend, pick the right thing that's going to get bigger and, and not chase the thing that isn't. And also like ask the question, why, you know, everybody's been doing it this way. Why are we doing it this way? Maybe there's a better way to do it. And having a clear vision for where you're trying to get to and, and sort of, Pushing through for clarity, so to speak, I think was uh, was probably his his biggest skill. Plus, just having a a both both having the vision and being able to communicate the vision and being able to communicate it sort of forcefully enough um, that uh, uh, people could could take it seriously. And also, I would say being ultimately practical about things um, and not just saying I have this vision and it's amazing and we can do this and this and this, but also making sure that that vision is enough tethered to reality that yes, it may be hard, but it's not just completely impossible. And if it turns out it is just outright impossible, you know, pivoting and deciding something different. And I think Steve, I like to think I have the same attribute, um, uh, you know, was capable of changing his mind about things. 
If it turned out, look, this just didn't make sense or something he thought was a waste of time that turns out not to be a waste of time, he could actually change his mind and not get sort of frozen into some point of view about, about how things had to be. And I think it's, you know, it's important when you lead organizations, you can't change your mind every day. Um, people, you know, that, that doesn't, it doesn't really work. People, uh, I've always found, you know, sometimes I've had to do things where, you know, the things haven't been things everybody wants, but somehow or some, you know, bad things happen, you know, and, and, and you have to kind of uh, deal with those bad things. And the thing I've noticed is I've sometimes worried, you know, how are people going to react to this thing I'm doing that is, you know, it's this bad thing that, you know, which has to have this happen, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think people, the thing that I've always noticed is as soon as you say something definite, we're going to do this, you know, oh, this person died, this person, whatever else. And so now we have to figure out what to do. We're going to do this. And you have a sort of a definite direction. And you're not like, oh, my gosh, I don't know what to do. So long as you have a definite direction, I think people respond typically well to that, even if maybe some of them don't completely like the direction. But it's, you know, having the definiteness and the fact that one is providing leadership there is, is important. So I think that's um, uh, uh, that's my, my analysis on, on um, uh a little bit of analysis on, on Stephen. Mikhail is asking here, what is more important, focus or a good idea? You know, what's a good idea and what's not? There's a lot involved in the execution of ideas that can turn what seemed like a fairly bad idea into something which is a big success and where people look back and say, actually, that was a good idea. You know, there's a, I mean, there are ideas where you're off in a direction that's just completely silly and it's just, you know, it could it it its probability of being recoverable is extremely low. I mean, sometimes I see companies where the idea really seems extremely bad, but nevertheless they end up doing well because they made those little corrections and they took that bad idea and they were able to sort of tweak it to attach to something that made sense in the world. Um, sometimes they're really good ideas that you know execution is necessary to get, um, you know, very ideas don't sort of take root by themselves. I think it's fair to say that I've essentially never seen that happen of just, it's a good idea, it's just gonna happen. You know, nobody needs to, to do anything to kind of uh, uh, actually execute on it to, to make it happen, kind of an idea. It's, it's like the, now, now having, having said that, occasionally, and, and particularly in, in web kinds of settings, there are sort of products that kind of sell themselves. I mean, like, for example, if you look at Wolfram Alpha, you know, where we have, uh, you know, premium uh, products built around Wolfram Alpha, we've never really done uh, energetic sort of selling of those products. They kind of sell themselves uh, insofar as they're, they're you know, that it's, it's a thing where it's a... It's something where people get exposed to it. There's a there's a kind of a path upward, and and that's a that's a place where where things can happen. Um, and you know there are other cases where we have products that I think are really good, but they're pretty complicated to explain, and where you kind of have to do a lot of. I mean, in addition to the execution of the product, there's also explaining the product and actually getting people to use it, 
and kind of building the pipelines to 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 make that happen. And sometimes I think we're not as a company not as good at doing that last stage as we should be. And uh, we are uh, we're we're definitely uh, we're always looking for the right set of people to help us execute on that last stage of of uh, of taking things out there. We're much more on the build innovative products and make them work kind of thing. But I would say that that raw ideas, I mean, so, so one thing, people come to us and say, I've got a new idea for what your company should do. That's great. We've got thousands of ideas about what we should do. You know, it's it's extremely rare that the that the, oh, I've got a new idea is worth very much. Because, you know, what, what is worth something is the idea embedded in this matrix where it can actually be executed the actual process and effort necessary to execute it, the vision that you communicate about that idea and so on, that's what really makes it worthwhile. The raw idea is like, well, okay, fair enough. I mean, it's like, whatever. Um, it, it very rarely, and, and you know, one of the things, perhaps it's a feature of our particular company, maybe not generally true, that we have a lot of creative people uh, and we generate a lot of ideas. Um, and you know the bottleneck is is the execution of those ideas. And even if our company was ten times its current size, I don't think those ideas. You know, it's not like we would execute ten times as many ideas. Um, there are things that sort of need to come together to make it possible to execute an idea, and so on. So let's see. There's a question here, sort of practical question, um, from Wave. How quickly did you get help with things like business administration, accounting, and things like that? Um, you know, well, I suppose it can tell you something, but I've never personally done those things. I don't know how to use QuickBooks. I don't know how to use fancier accounting systems. I don't know the government forms you have to file. Uh, the fact that I don't know those things kind of tells you that from day one, with all the things I've started, um, somehow I had somebody to help with those things. Um, the uh, uh, I think that um, uh, those kinds of functions are very uh, kind of they're they're well defined. You know, every company does certain kinds of things more or less the same way, and the, you know the way the tax system works and all this kind of thing. You're kind of constrained to you know make your accounts work in more or less this way, because that's what you need to be able to file taxes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's kind of like, you might as well get that capability off the shelf somewhere. It's not, you know, if your goal is to make the next great tech thing, that just isn't something that is central to your mission. And it's probably something where you find somebody else to do it. And it's fairly easy to do that because it's, it's pretty well defined. Much easier than if you say, Oh, I'm going to build a, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this. I've got this tech idea, but I'm not a tech person. I'm just going to find a generic engineer to um, uh, to sort of execute on my idea. That usually doesn't end well because, you know, whereas you know, filling out a tax return is a thing that gets done millions of times, and they sort of all kind of work the same way. Um, the uh, you know building, you know, engineering a product, they don't all work the same way. And that's something that's much harder to, to delegate, so to speak. Um, so that's, um, uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that's the way that's, that's worked. Um, there's a question from Wave here. How much of the operations of our business are we able to automate with functions of Wolfram language and are there special functions for this purpose? Uh, we've worked hard on automating a lot of stuff. Um, we actually have a big project right now to 
build our ERP system, transactions processing and so on system, uh, a sort of core business operations system using Wolfram Language as a project been going on for a number of years. What we're building is spectacular. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not easy. It's quite a big team of people. It's taken a lot of years. It kind of, we were sort of, I got seriously fed up with the kind of the, the quality and prices of enterprise software that we were using to run those kinds of operations. And, and also being told things like, oh, we can't put this product out because we have to put it into the RP system. And it's going to take us a month to figure out how to do that. And it's like, no, this is not a reasonable thing. You know, this is this is not something where our business should be slowed down by sort of weird weirdness and complexity in the RP system. So we're building it ourselves. And we actually have, so you may have seen the uh, function wolf and function repository. Uh, we, we have an internal version of that which has um, all sorts of functions and it's growing rapidly uh, for doing internal kinds of operations. It's kind of like the, the internal APIs of our business, which are just Wolfram language functions where you can you know, query things about the employee database, or you can um, uh, do things about looking at the build system for our product. So you can look at uh, QA results, so you can look at financial data and so on. Uh, those are functions in the internal function repository. And we're trying to generalize that as much as we can um, to make it so that the things we do uh, make use of the thing that we're very proud of and we think is very valuable in the world, this sort of level of computational intelligence that we've achieved with Wolfram Language, that um, at the very least, this is a eat one's own dog food kind of situation um, where you know we think it's really valuable and can leverage a lot of things. And that's what we're doing now, of course, for, for decades, we've leveraged that technology in terms of the actual building of our products themselves and the fact that we're able to, to generate as much, and I'm very impressed with the amount of innovation that our teams have been able to, to, uh, to, to, to generate as we go forward with different new versions of Wolfram Language. I mean, it's really the, the amount of stuff that we're able to do in each new version is really, frankly, just spectacular. And, and that is a consequence purely of building on top of our own dog food, so to speak. I mean, that's, you know, it's Wolfram language for, for everything we're building. And increasingly, as we make our compiler technology better, we're able to use it for a broader range of things. Our whole QA system is built in Wolfram language, release engineering, all these kinds of things um, are, you know, leveraging the, the technology that we've built to be able to build more. Um, in terms of business operations, we've been steadily doing more and more of that, uh, while still making use of other tools when those other tools are really worthwhile, but often like, for example, something like Git, um, you know, we are using that for uh, source control, but we have a whole Git link system, which is a Wolfram language system that uh, is what controls our whole Git uh, capability that, that we use internally and so on. Um, let's see. The question here about uh, from game, uh, what is your success failure ratio for ideas, projects you've started um, and uh, what fraction haven't quite worked out? I have to say that, that my and our success ratio in terms of having projects uh, sort of get to the point where they are finished, tied in a bow, you know, do their thing in the world is extremely high. I mean, the, the rate of projects that have outright failed is, is just unbelievably small. I mean, both for me personally and for the company, um, uh, you know, occasionally there'll be a project where we get it to a certain point 
and then we say this is not the right time and we hibernate it perhaps for five years or more but in terms of like that was a bad idea just kill it it's it's i'm trying to think when was the last one of those that happened oh my gosh um there was one that was a good idea which was kind of a a, a sort of a, a social network for the techie crowd um, that we started and I would say the person who was leading it just sort of couldn't get it off the ground and um, uh, that person um, I think initially got recycled into something else and then and then left and that was um, that was an example of something well not a huge amount of work had been done on it but that was something where you know it did it did sort of make it out of the um, you know off the launch pad so to speak a bit um, but that's um, uh, and I suppose a, a, another uh, another project which probably is hibernated rather than um, uh, rather than killed was a project uh, from now what was it seven or eight years ago talking of launch pads as a project uh, you know we generate a lot of interesting technology at our company and our capability to commercialize it is is limited and so one of the things that's sort of a, a, a pity is that we have all these different things which which we could turn into kind of businesses in their own right but we don't have either the people or the resources to do that um, and so one of the things that uh, I was kind of um, encouraged to do and, and ended up doing or, or you know building out capabilities to do um, was uh, to kind of create an investment fund where uh, where we could get sort of a, a, a substantial fund to fund the spin-off of companies from our company because we have technology, we have you know things that but they need uh, sort of the final wrapping and they need actual sort of commercial efforts around them and they need teams around them. And it's just not something that we were you know had the kind of mindshare or resources to, to do. And that, and that project actually um, was kind of a frustrating situation. It, it, um, uh, it got, you know, it was like, okay, we, we're going to do this fund. And then people were like, oh, yeah, we'd like to invest in that. And, and you know, it's like, like to do that. But there's a particular individual who was uh, supposed to be running that whole thing. And I was like, I don't want to do this. This is not my personal thing. If you want to do it, then this is great. Let's do it. And so on, and, and that particular individual ended up getting it to the point. Where I think was in a, I don't know. I suppose I could say sort of a, a midlife crisis point or something. And like within weeks of this thing, actually start. Oh my gosh, no, no, no! I got to go and um, uh, you know uh, uh, change my life completely. And so I, I said, gee, well then we're just not going to do it because you know I saw that falling through into me CEOing something that was you know some investment fund thing not what i'm interested in doing it's um uh i think it's a good idea i think there's some i think you know my theory about these kinds of business ventures i mean one thing i would generally say is that you know i basically never see deals anywhere where you know somebody loses somebody wins and that all comes out okay you know basically Deals have to be such that that everybody wins, um, and and whenever even if people don't win because they mess up on purely on their side, if they had a winning thing but they mess it up and it doesn't win as a result of that, even that is bad. 
but sometimes it's out of your control. You know, you make a deal, and uh, uh, and you know, it 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 is a it is something that leads to the possibility of a big win. But you know, let's say you're working with some big company, and they just like you know you and they just like uh, can't kind of orient things to to make something actually work. Um, I think uh, uh, you know that that's an example of um, so so. There's another example of a um, uh, of a project that um, uh, uh, in my sort of success versus failure. I mean, I suppose that one. Um, I uh, um, you know they're, they're they're projects where we take them to the point of evaluating is this a good idea, and we decide no. And I don't consider that you know that that never that never started. We never put significant resources into it. Um, and in terms of ones where we have started to put significant resources, the the success ratio is unbelievably high. Um, although the project as it finally came out might have morphed somewhat relative to the project as it went it as it, as it started off. But I think, for example, you know, I sort of pride myself on being pretty good at figuring out is this project doable. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it is much harder to predict, is this project going to be a huge commercial win, a, a small commercial win? Is it really going to pay for itself and so on? Those are harder things to predict. But is the project going to be doable and get to the point where you can sort of present it to the world? That's something for which we, we, we have uh, great success along those lines. Um, okay, maybe one or two more and then we should wrap up here. How much do you think that the title of your degree affects what projects you'll be able to work on? Do you think the label traps you in one field or type of job? I think, uh, well, it shouldn't. Let me say that. It shouldn't. You know, if you look at my company, I have not a clue what subjects different people, most people in, in our company got their degrees in. And uh, in there are people who get their degree in, I don't know, fine arts or something or graphic design, and they're doing graphic design. And yes, that's a thing. I would say there are people who uh, get their degrees for us in, in areas of mathematics where they're doing things that are sort of sophisticated mathematics. But I would say that the, the vast majority of, of degrees of, um, 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 of kind of, um, um, the uh, um, uh, you know a company that says you must have a degree in uh, you know software and in computer science with this thing and that thing and that thing and that thing um, you know I, I I would be suspicious about that as a as a as a, a good place to be well it depends what you want to do if you if if the thing that they want is a precise you know, uh, on the nose match for the thing that you learned in school and you like doing it, then go for it. But the idea that uh, the company rejects you because the degree you have is slightly off, um, I, I don't think that's really a thing or it shouldn't be a thing. I mean, you know, I know that in terms of, well, for example, in terms of programming and software development, you know, most of the best programmers I know haven't taken a single class in software development, okay? So, um, and uh, uh, it's one of these things where if you had to take that many classes in software development, 
you know, that was because you didn't really know what you were doing in some sense. Now, maybe that's a little unfair and people may choose to do it because it's kind of fun and it's easy for them to get A's and so on. But I, I really think it's one of these things where, where having the right mindset, actually doing projects, um, learning things and so on, that's, that's really worthwhile. And when it comes to employers, being able to say, look, there's this thing I built and uh, look at all the cool things that it does and so on. That's a really worthwhile thing, probably much more worthwhile than to say, you know, I did an operating systems class and I wrote this toy thing that was incredibly constrained by the by the rubric of the of the class. That's that's a much less interesting thing to be able to say than, well, I decided to build this, you know, device driver for this operating system. And, you know, here's what it did. And, and you know, I had to solve all these problems to, to do it. Um, so I, I think that's um, um, now, you know, it probably depends a little bit on the on the um, type of uh, well, I would say that, uh, OK, you know, part of the point in, for example, software development, people like me are trying to automate, you know, all of the really sort of in the trenches things that you might think you had to do of, you know, of, of writing this sort of very low level code. My goal is to continue what I've already seen happen in sort of the history of the software industry. I mean, it's worth remembering that when I started in the software world, uh, people were saying to me, you can't be writing in a language like C. Um, you know, you've got to write an assembly language. That's the only thing that any serious software is written in, is assembly language. Now, of course, they were completely wrong. And, you know, now, you know, you go up another level, Java, Python, whatever, um, you know, it's uh, people will always say, oh, you can't be writing at that higher level, you know, in, in, a, in a still higher level, you know, you can't write that in Wolfram language because, you know, you've got to, it's got to be written in Java instead. Uh, well, probably not. Uh, you know, it's probably going to take you 20 times longer to write it in Java and you're not going to, you know, it's not going to be as flexible and it's not going to have as many capabilities and so on. And, but somebody says, but, but it feels more solid if it's written in assembly language. Yeah, well, if people like me do our jobs correctly, then what you will get in the end from building what you're doing in sort of the highest possible level of language is you get to leverage all that optimization, all those algorithms, all that sort of computational intelligence, um, and you kind of get that for free. Whereas if you're building at a lower level, Anytime you want to use that more sophisticated thing, you've got to build all that stuff for yourself. And um, uh, so, you know, I think that the this question about do you really need to be, for example, a tradesperson of, uh, you know, a Java tradesperson or something, um, the answer is that's not going to be the most important thing going forward. The most important things going forward will be things about sort of computational thinking about things, sort of computational method for doing things. And those are things that, I would say right now are not really getting taught very much in, in any kind of standard academic class. Hopefully that will change and maybe some things we'll do, we'll try to change that and try to provide for, for some of those, those things to be taught better. But I think that the thing that um, uh, is, is, is worth realizing is, you know, it's sort of a, a level playing field because it's like, like that isn't something that's that's being taught in academia, except sort of in, it's like in academia, are you taught how to select a project? Not really. That's not what academia is typically about. It's typically about, you know, you've got this problem to solve. You've got this, you know, this exercise to do. Go do it. Go learn these things. 
um, you know, just doesn't happen to be something that gets taught there. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not, uh, that's not, oh, academia is, academia is worthless because of that. It's just, it's a different thing. Um, and it's something you have to learn in different ways. And I think that the, um, uh, this question about sort of, uh, um, you know, do you need a trade degree to do something? Well, yes, if it's a job that is a, is a trade type job, then you need a trade degree to do it. Um, if it's something that is kind of, I would say more on the sort of innovative end of things, that is going to be less and less important just because, you know, the trade you've learned is not going to align precisely with the perhaps unknown direction that the innovation has to take. Let's see, there's a comment here about Indie Hackers podcast, which I know nothing about. That's for somebody else to, to think about. Um, let's see. It's a question from RBS here about um, um, that they have thousands of ideas, how to prioritize. They don't care about the money when doing something interesting. Is that a good idea? Yes. I mean, for me at least, but you know, everybody's personality and, and way of doing things is different. But I mean, for me, uh, you know, there's a, uh, it's kind of like, you know, I personally have am not a, financially motivated, you know, person in the sense that, you know, I like to do the things I like to do. Some of those things cost money. Like if you want to build out a big project, it costs money. And so you need to make money in order to be able to do that. But for the, you know, uh, you know, admire the swimming pool worth of gold bars, or, you know, swimming pool full of gold bars type thing, that's never really been, you know, it's, it's like, uh, I suppose, you know, it's a, it's a question of, you know, if there's sort of a self-esteem aspect of, you know, can I count the zeros in my bank account type thing in, um, uh, uh, for me, that's not, that's not a motivating feature. Um, it's, uh, you know, uh, it is a reality of the world that to do certain kinds of things in the world, you have to make a certain amount of money. And to, uh, to be able to spend your time doing certain kinds of things, you have to make a certain amount of money to, for example, be able to delegate things or whatever else, uh, and that um, so that you're not doing those things. Um, but I think that the um, um, the question of whether uh, you know, look, it is important to pick definite projects and work on them. And I, you know, in my earlier life, I was a very sequential worker. That is, I would start a project, I would work all my time on that project, I would finish it, I would go on to the next one. As I got sort of into more and more projects and more and more complicated life, I couldn't do that anymore. And so I had to run things in parallel. Um, and uh, I, I, it took me quite a while to be able to do that. And it took me a lot of infrastructure with other people to be able to do that, of project managers and reviews and notes from things and all that kind of stuff so that I could do a stop-start kind of thing and also delegating the actual doing of, of many parts of those projects. But I would say that... Um, uh, you know, for me, a very important thing is you start a project, you finish the project, and you have to, you know, there are, I, I regret pretty much every project in my life that I've ever started but not finished. And, you know, I was realizing there was some paper that I started writing in 1976 about neutrino background radiation, and I found it recently, and I was like, drat, I should have finished that. And, you know, I didn't finish it because I ran into some problem I couldn't solve, but I should have sort of cauterized the thing and sort of published what I had, so to speak. 
Um, and uh, uh, it's like that was just it was just dumb on my part to not do that, to not get it to the point where it was a finished thing, even if it wasn't everything that it could be to get something finished is worthwhile. Um, because for me, it's it's like, uh, uh, you know, and, and and there are things where, well, as I say, I'm, I'm sort of amusing case. OK, and I I wrote um, with a back in 1981, I think I wrote a. Um, uh, a couple of papers with another chap um, uh, uh, that were about uh, physics. They were, had the strange prop the title, Properties of the Vacuum, part one and part two. Okay, so actually part one became sort of a, a uh, interesting seed for a, a bunch of ideas about uh, zero point energy and, and generating energy from the vacuum. And I think it's, if it, it, it's wound up a certain amount in physics and a certain amount in science fiction movies. Um, some of the things that we we developed there. The, the science fiction movies wasn't an intended uh, intended market, so to speak, for those ideas. But anyway, uh, we kind of said this is, there are three papers in this series, one, two, three, but we only wrote two of them. And uh, the chap I wrote them with has said, uh, who, whose, whose name begins with A, so he was the first author of these things, um, was, uh, uh, you know, he says he's been getting letters and cards from people for, for decades saying, you know, where's part three? You know, I really want part three. So it's sort of a funny thing there is that I finally figured out how to do part three. And I finally figured out a really interesting uh, version of part, of part three. And um, so, but, uh, but now I, I, my, um, uh, my co-author um, is, still, is still active in physics, um, but uh, uh, has definitely gone off. And I think, I think the tower that I've built of other kinds of things is pretty tall and it's not clear how that's going to relate. I keep on saying, you know, let's take a vacation for a few days and try and write part three. And I think even the concept that one could do what is, you know, will ultimately be a somewhat difficult and, and major piece of physics, the concept that one could say, I'm gonna take a three day vacation and do this is pretty alien to somebody who spent their life as an academic physicist. Um, and, you know, for me, it's just like, well, that's what I have to do. You know, it's a difficult project, but, you know, I know roughly what to do. I have a definite idea. This is how we can execute it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get a certain distance. Then there will be things that have to be, can be delegated and, we, and those can get worked on and so on. Um, and, uh, uh, but anyway, that was a, that was a, uh, for me, that kind of is a, is a frustrating not finishing what one started and, and also a lesson never advertise something as part one or part two of some collection of, uh, of, of uh, academic papers or something, because you never know what's going to happen. All right, well, thank you very much for all those interesting questions and, and so on. Um, and uh, I guess our plan is to go on in, um, uh, we'll have another one of these in two weeks. In a week, I'll be doing a Q&A about history of science and technology. I think actually two weeks is um, the uh, uh, one year anniversary of the launch of our physics project. So we may um, uh, adjust the time of this, um, uh, of this live stream um, because I'll be doing something about um, summing up um, what we've, what we've, uh, what's happened in this, in this year of development of our physics project. But okay, thanks for, for joining us, and um, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. 
For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.